So I'm at a party the other night, and as I often do at these parties, I don't like to talk about my career because people often talk to me in this much more different fashion that seems as though they're afraid of me or something. So I like to avoid talking about my career. And so I'm at this party, and and these people don't know me, and people are talking about various different things. And the conversation starts to get a bit interesting and some people are talking and, and, and one person says, well, I never went to therapy because I didn't want to become dependent on my therapist. I mean, this isn't what she was saying, but essentially this is what she was saying was that people who go to therapy are weak and therapists are just after your money. And this person said she didn't want to become dependent on her therapist. And I just found myself silently screaming because I've heard this so many times and it just makes no sense. Now, from from the onset, I'll say, if someone doesn't want therapy, then great. And, you know, for whatever reasons the person has, then great, of course. And, of course, it would seem that as a therapist myself, I have a biased opinion that everyone should be in therapy all the time. You know, it's sort of like if you're a liposuction person, then you think everyone needs liposuction. Or if you're a teeth whitener, then you think everyone's teeth are too too brown or something. So so it's, you know, it's very convenient for me as a therapist to say everyone should be in therapy. But And I actually don't believe that. But when I hear someone say that they didn't want to go to therapy because they didn't want to be dependent on their therapist, as if all therapy basically promotes dependency, as if being, quote unquote, addicted to therapy is an actual thing, it just drives me nuts because how many people could benefit from therapy and because of this false notion that's out there in the ether, they don't get therapy and, and are therefore harmed as, as a result. Their overall well-being is harmed. And even though in the States, we're generally more open to therapy and in Seattle, even more so, and even in my culture pocket, even more so, there is still a stigma around getting therapy, certainly. And study after study shows that the majority of people that could benefit from some form of counseling do not get counseling. And why is that? I mean, the majority of people who have diabetes that need treatment for diabetes in the States generally get treatment. The people who have a broken arm generally get treatment. The people who have depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder don't get treatment. And it's because of stigma. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the reasons why people don't go into therapy. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a lic- I'm a licensed therapist and a professor. It's just me today. So let's get into it. So first off, let's talk about this notion of being dependent on your therapist. Now, I will say that it's certainly possible to become dependent on your therapist in a way that is not helpful. However, it can be very helpful to, over time, develop a rich relationship with your therapist because studies have shown, many, many studies have shown that the relationship you have with your therapist is the main factor that you have control over the therapist and the, and the client that can lead to better outcomes, regardless of what you come into therapy for. 
I could go on and on about this, and I'm not going to perhaps in another episode. But study after study has shown, and many meta studies, and I won't go into it perhaps in another episode, but a major factor that determines the outcome of therapy is the relationship that the client and the therapist build together. If the relationship is generally good, then the outcomes are generally good. Regardless of the theoretical orientation, whether the therapist is CBT or psychodynamic or humanistic, it doesn't matter. If the relationship is good, then that's more important than the theoretical orientation. And what do I, what do I mean by relationship? Well, generally speaking, and again, this is a complicated topic, but generally speaking, it has to do with a number of factors. One is, is that the client and the therapist both agree on what they're doing in therapy. If the therapist is going one direction and the client is going a different direction, then that is harmful to the relationship. Another element is just general positive regard, that the client and therapist regard each other positively, that essentially that they like each other, that they respect each other, that they enjoy talking to each other. And there are other elements like does the client feel like the therapist understands him or her? And there's a number of other factors too. But, you know, so if the relationship is good, then the outcomes are generally good. So this type of relationship can sometimes breed, quote unquote, dependency, meaning that the client depends on the therapist to be a part of their life and their weekly functioning depends on being able to have contact with their therapist. So upon hearing that, those who are not familiar with therapy and are hostile to therapy are aghast at that. They, they're terrified of that. They think, oh my God, so these therapists are out there breeding dependency among their clients so that they can make more money and, and keep the person sick. Well, it, 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 certainly there are cases like that, but for the vast majority of therapists, it's the opposite. The therapist might breed dependency in the beginning, quote unquote, quote unquote, breed dependency. They probably wouldn't see it that way. But I often talk with my students and my supervisees in that way in that you, let's just not mince words here. You, you're trying to build a relationship that the client likes and that the client is benefited by. And to do that, you have to deepen the relationship. And so the relationship can become important to the client that, in that the client will not easily walk away from that relationship. Now, that's not the purpose of doing this. The purpose is when you deepen a relationship, it helps outcomes. It helps toward whatever you're working on. Not only because in order for a client to listen to a therapist, the client has to believe that the therapist has positive regard for them, but also in my opinion, and, in, and according to a lot of research, when a client and therapist have a deep relationship, the client benefits from this in a way that people benefit from any relationship. You know, when we're children... And we need someone to listen to us. We need someone to believe in us. We need someone to be secure. We need to depend on people. That's what helps us develop. That's what helps us feel good about ourselves. That's what helps us be able to venture off into the world. We need attachments. We need to be fulfilled through attachments. We're not individuals. We are social creatures. So as we are growing up, and this never leaves us, we, we always need that. 
we need it particularly when we're children, but we need it as adults too. And this relationship that therapists and clients have can also be that attachment that can enrich someone's life. So the attachment between therapist and client can be curative. And I emphasize this a lot to my students because it doesn't get talked about enough. I think it's scary to therapists to think about this because of the criticisms that people have in that being dependent on your therapist is, is something scary and unethical. Now, having said that, once the help is occurring in the therapy and say, you know, a year goes by or something. Well, in my experience, eventually the client chooses to move away from the therapist. Once someone has an issue that has been healed, say, for instance, they've been through a divorce and they've been hurt, they've been betrayed, they've been cheated on, for instance, and their fundamental feeling about themselves and other humans has been shattered. The, their worldview has been shattered. They're grieving these losses and they don't know what to do. And then they go to therapy and through the therapeutic relationship, an attachment is cultivated by both people. And the client ends up feeling dependent for a time on the therapist while they are grieving and while they are healing. At the end of however much time it takes for that to happen, the client, you know, they start to build other relationships outside of therapy at the encouragement of the therapist. Then eventually the, the client says, you know what, I, I feel good in my life. I, I, I've recovered from the divorce and the infidelity, and I have friends I can talk to, and I feel good in, in life, and I don't think I need therapy anymore, and so I'm going to end that relationship. That's the majority of what I see. It's very rare, I don't know, like less than 1% of the time that I have seen a client become quote-unquote dependent on the therapeutic relationship in a pathological manner. It definitely happens, but it's much more common to see the opposite. So the dependency will naturally shed over time. The other thing is, is good therapists, ethical and competent therapists, will actively encourage clients to build a life outside of therapy. If a client comes in and has no support system, a, a high priority for the therapy is for the therapist to help the client build a support system. The vast majority of Americans lack a support system. They might have one or two people, if that, but they definitely don't have as many people as what we need, which is a community of supportive people, maybe five, 10 people that we can turn to in, in a pinch. And so therapy often involves problem solving around that. What's getting in the way of that? How can you reach out to people? Now, sometimes the therapeutic relationship can be a model for the relationships that people develop outside of therapy. And so in this way, a client can try out certain things with the therapist in a safe environment because the therapist, it's, it's, it's mostly a one-way relationship. So if the client does something inappropriate, so to speak, with the therapist, the therapist isn't likely to reject the client. So the, the therapist and the client can talk about their interpersonal demeanor. And then once the client becomes more confident and more able socially, then it becomes easier to develop a social life outside of the therapy office. So again, when I hear people say that 
they don't want to go to therapy because they don't want to be dependent on their therapist. It just drives me crazy because in some ways, becoming dependent on your therapist is a good thing. So the other thing that this touches on is that another thing I hear sometimes is therapists are only in it for the money. And I just have to say that is a ludicrous statement. If you're a privileged American, which most therapists are because they're able to go to college and get a master's degree or a doctorate, in order to do that, you generally have to be a privileged individual. You don't have to be, but in general, most therapists, most clinicians are privileged people. If you come from a privileged part of society, you can do anything you want, right? You could work for Microsoft. You could work for the government. You could work for the military. You could work for Starbucks. You could work for Google. You could strive to do any of these things that, by the way, all of them are likely to make more money than a life of being a therapist. So, or you could be a doctor or a surgeon or, you know, a finance person or a Goldman Sachs guy or something. So there's so many career paths that a privileged person has before them available to them. If they choose to become a therapist, they are saying to themselves, I would rather help people than make a ton of money because they know that there are plenty of other careers. And, and incidentally, at Antioch University, where I teach, many of the students this is, this is their second career. They, they started off in finance. They started off in real estate. They, they started off in the medical field. And it, later in life, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they, they decided, you know what? I've always wanted to be a therapist. I'm going to go back to school and become a therapist. Even though I'm taking a pay cut, I'd rather do that because it has more meaning in my life. So the assertion, the argument that therapists are only after your money is an absurd notion. Now, certainly there are greedy therapists, but honestly, I don't know if I've met one in my life and I've come across thousands of therapists. Therapists, their primary goal in my experience is to make a difference in the world. They really want to help people and they're in a, in a perfect uh, profession to do that, I must say. I mean, as, as a therapist myself, I am continually professionally gratified by the work that I do. Now, is everything I do a home run? Absolutely not. But I go to bed easy at night knowing that I tried to hit a home run. <laughs> Maybe I struck out all day long, but I know that I tried. So the notion that therapists are just after your money and will diagnose you with things just to keep you in therapy is, is really absurd. Just absurd. In fact, I would say most therapists are too paranoid about doing that and don't charge enough. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've told my supervisees, you're not charging enough. You're worth more than that. Now, sometimes I'm saying charge less because you're starting out and you need to get more clients to build your practice. But a lot of times I'm telling my, my supervisees, look, you went to school. You, you got a bachelor's degree. That's, that's a pain in the ass. You got a master's degree. That's even a more pain in the ass. You took out a massive student loan. You worked really hard. You did an internship where you volunteered for free. And now you're building your practice. You are worth something. Don't feel guilty about charging clients something that you should be compensated for. So the, the notion that therapists are out to get your money and they're going to make you dependent on them just to get your money is just ludicrous to me. 
The the other notion that's in this area is the idea that you can become addicted to therapy. And sometimes I hear this about AA too. Oh, you know, people give up their addiction for alcohol just and just replace it with an addiction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, the notion is ludicrous. Being addicted to alcohol is extremely destructive to your body, your mind, and your soul. It's into your social life, into your family life, and everything. If you've ever been close to an alcoholic, you will definitely see that. Or if you're addicted to meth, or if you're addicted to heroin, or if you're addicted to uh, pot to some extent, addicted to gambling, addicted to sex, these things tend to destroy your life. Being go, Going to AA frequently and depending on AA to help you with your sobriety does not have a degrading effect on your life. Going to therapy once a week or twice a month does not degrade your life. Now, you have to pay for it and you have to spend the time to do it, but it doesn't degrade your life the way meth does. Meth destroys your life if you use it every day. Cocaine destroys your life every day. If you're very dependent on therapy, meaning that in in order for you to function well that week, you need your therapist's help, their perspective, their relationship, their positive regard, their empathy. You you really benefit from that. And without that, your life tends to not go so well. Being dependent on that, it, in my opinion, is nowhere near being addicted to something in a negative way. In the same way, it'd be like saying, in my mind, this is how I see it, is, oh, you're drinking water. You're so addicted to water. (laughs) Or, man, you sleep like, what, eight hours a day? Man, you're addicted to sleep. It's just, it makes no sense to say that someone's addicted to therapy or or AA. Now, you know, if if someone, again, doesn't want to go to therapy and they just, or they went to therapy, and it didn't really benefit them or I don't know, whatever opinion they want to have about therapy, that's fine. It, you know, it just doesn't sit well with you or just, you just don't feel like it or it, it doesn't, it's not, you're not comfortable with it, you know, whatever. But to put down other people that go to therapy for a couple years to help them get over a loss of some kind, like the death of their mother or a divorce, like I was talking about earlier, or to cope with a teenager who is defying them and yelling at them and using drugs and dropping out of school and they're, and the mother is very sad and, and wants some support around that and some, some ideas about how to cope with that. To say that that person is addicted and therefore a weak person is really, really maddening to me to, to judge other people in that way. It's just, it drives me crazy. And it has, again, to do with the stigma around therapy and a, really a lot of misconceptions about what therapy is. I, I have this vision in my head of what other people have a vision about therapy. I have a vision about other people's visions about what therapy is. And sometimes I, and it's portrayed in the movies if, and TV if you ever watch that. Um, and by the way, just a little plug here, I am launching my continuing education program if you go to psychologyinseattle.com and click on the continuing education tab, you can find courses that I am launching that you can actually just listen to the podcast, take a little quiz, pay a, a small fee, and get your certificate for continuing education. 
And one of them is psychotherapy and mental illness in film and TV. And it's along these lines. So again, if you want to get continuing education credits for listening to the podcast, go to psychologyinseattle.com and click on the continuing education tab. But, um, but anyway, so, so this, my vision of other people's vision is that these weak, complaining people go to therapy and then the therapist analyzes them and in this arrogant, very uppity manner says what the client is suffering from, you know, like, like you have this, you know, weak guy who comes into therapy and he's neurotic and he's very anxious and he doesn't know what to do. And, and all, and, you know, of course, all that he really should do is just man up, be a man and get over his fears, but he can't cause he's weak. And so he comes into therapy and then the therapist says, you clearly have an Oedipal complex. You would, you want to have sex with your mom. And that's why you are this way. I think you need to be in therapy three times a week for the next 10 years. The bill will be in the mail. I mean, these are things that are portrayed, not so much anymore, but definitely have been. And I think that when people have that as their construction of what therapy is, then they are naturally hostile toward it and will say things like, well, clearly that guy's addicted to therapy, you know. So anyway. Another thing that gets in the way of people going to therapy when they might benefit from it is this American notion of independence and being able to do things on your own. I could go into the history of the sociocultural nature of this issue, but I won't because I probably couldn't ramble about it off the top of my head anyway. But it goes way back in American culture in particular, uh, mainly, I think, if I remember right, because a lot of American culture comes from Northern European culture and Northern Europeans tend to be more independent. And so it has that legacy. But anyway, so in America, we tend to value independence being, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Is that the saying? Is that how it goes? Doing things on your own. You remember the whole Republican Democrat thing where they were yelling at each other about how Democrats were saying that the government helped you. And then the Republicans were saying, I did it alone. I can't remember. There was some sort of catchphrase during the last election. It was something like, you know, I built my business by myself. And then the Democrats were saying, well, the reason why you were able to build that business is because the government subsidized your schooling, which gave the education and da, 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 you know, and so there's this, there's this philosophical debate in our society around independence and, and certainly both sides are, are right uh, and both sides are, are wrong for attacking the other side. But anyway, there's this thing in our, in our culture that says that if you need help, then you're weak. And if you do it on your own, that's the best way to do it. It's in all our movies, you know, Luke Skywalker. Well, that's probably a bad example because he actually got help from Obi-Wan. But um, but lots of movies, you know, Clint Eastwood movies, Westerns, the the lone rider comes in and, and kicks ass and doesn't need anybody. Well, th- this 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 romantic notion of independence is is quite pervasive in our culture. And if someone is depressed or if they're struggling with a divorce or trauma, then the tendency is for Americans to try to cope with it on their own. 
the the second tendency for them is to go to a medical doctor and then a distant third or maybe even fifth or tenth down the line is for them to see a therapist. So this notion of needing to talk it out, needing support, needing someone to help them psychologically is just completely counter to the American independent ideal. And so that's another reason why people won't go to therapy. And another thing that, that drives me crazy, not as much as the dependency thing, but it still sort of drives me crazy because, and I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. And I say it to my students all the time. We are social creatures. We need humans and we cannot do things on our own. Babies, if you leave them alone and you don't nurture them and hold them, you can feed them all you want and, and that'll nourish them with nutrients. But if you don't hold them, babies sometimes die because they aren't given that physical affection. They're not given that human interaction. Animals like us need social interaction the same way we need water, the same way we need calories. We need other human interactions. Even when we're doing well, okay, when we're in a good mood, we, we absolutely, I mean, when you're in a good mood, you need water, right? You don't need water only when you're thirsty. You need water all the time. Well, in the same way, we need social interactions all the time. And particularly when we're struggling with something social, like a divorce or, the, or a loss or something like this. And so this is another barrier for people in terms of going to therapy and something that you'll hear people say sometimes, well, you know, I didn't go to therapy because I could deal with this on my own. Or I didn't want to be, again, become dependent on other people. You see a lot of themes around, you know, you're weak if you seek help. It all has to do, this, do with this pathological American independence. Another thing that I hear people sometimes say as a reason why they don't want to go to therapy is because they're too busy or they have other things that they want to spend their money on, this sort of thing. And again, for each individual, they're completely free to make that choice and maybe it's the best choice. But sometimes with particular people, uh, I, I hear them talking, these aren't my clients, these would be like colleagues or friends or family members or something. And I'm thinking, okay, so let me get this straight. You have time to watch sports on TV, you have time to watch reality TV, you have time to work an extra hour at work because you're trying to impress your boss, you have time to hang out with people socially, but you don't have one or two hours a week to work on yourself for the betterment of your well-being. An example of this came up recently where someone's suffering from a lot of anxiety for good reasons, but they have a lot of anxiety about something. And in my opinion, and I have a lot of evidence to base this on, if they went to a counselor and really focused on their anxiety, if they focused on the thoughts that they have, the, the quote unquote irrational thoughts they have about their situation that leads to their being anxious, then their anxiety would likely be reduced significantly. But instead of doing that, because they don't have time, they have to plan for the holidays. And I just think in my, in my mind, priority wise, the prior is much more important than the latter. Your, your well-being, your anxiety level, the, your emotional suffering, to my mind, a much higher priority than planning 
for the holidays or working an extra hour at work and definitely higher priority than watching TV. And so sometimes that drives me a little crazy. Again, less crazy than the, than the dependency thing. And again, if someone just doesn't want to go to therapy, you know, if, if they don't want to go to therapy and they're just saying they don't have time, you know, cause a lot of people will say, Oh, I don't have time for that. You know, like if you are asking someone, Hey, let's go for a hike. And the person's like, Oh, I don't really have time. You know, that could just mean that they just don't really want to go on the hike with you. So maybe that's why people are saying they don't have time. But at the same time, I just think what's more important in life. So that's another thing. Another thing that I hear people say is that they believe that therapy doesn't do anything. They, they, they have this notion in their mind that, you know, maybe they heard somewhere like one research study or one pundit saying that therapy doesn't do anything. It's ineffective. And this, this drives me bonkers because not only have I seen anecdotally therapy work in my own life as a client myself, and obviously as a therapist, I've seen it work tremendously well. But also there's a ton of empirical data proving that point for a number of different types of therapeutic approaches. So this is bothersome to me as well. And I could go on a long discussion about evidence-based therapy and the history of psychotherapy in general and in our culture, but I'll just sum up by saying that our, our industry has a long history and that history is embedded in our culture. And the general public, non-therapists, have been exposed to certain elements along the way in this history that has led them to believe that therapy is not effective. There's been a number of reasons for that. Like just one of the reasons is in the past and still to some extent today, there's a lot of fighting, infighting between different schools of thought among therapists, you know. So you have your psychodynamic people attacking your CBT people and your CBT people attacking the humanistic people and so on. And one of the ways that they attack each other is by saying their form of therapy is is ineffective and can't do anything. And this is particularly troublesome to me because I believe all the theories have merit and that there are ineffective elements within all the theories. There's effective elements and ineffective elements. There's particular presenting problems that some theories work well with and some theories don't. And so, so everyone's right and everyone's wrong for attacking each other. I, I had this thought <laughs> the other day about how when, when you go to a doctor, they don't say to you, I, I'm a blah, blah, blah doctor. They don't say that. You know, you, when you go to a therapist, they say, well, I'm a psychodynamic therapist. But when you go to a surgeon, like a brain surgeon, they don't say, oh, I'm a psychodynamic surgeon. And then next door you have your cognitive behavioral surgeon. You, you just have surgeons that read all the research available and they tailor their treatment to the problem. So if there's a tumor, for instance, in the brain, then they look up the treatment or they've done the treatment before that works best for that particular presentation and they apply that treatment. Well, when it comes to the therapy world, you have these pockets of clinicians that adhere to particular treatments and reject other treatments, which I just find incredibly obtuse. If you have an anxiety disorder and CBT is proven to work with that, then you should consider that as a treatment, whether you call yourself a CBT therapist or not. If complex trauma 
the evidence shows that psychodynamic therapy and interpersonal long-term therapy, insight-oriented relational therapy tends to work with those people, then you should be considering that treatment. Now, should you definitely use that treatment? Not necessarily. Should you use a treatment you're not trained in? No. But to reject an entire section of psychology and psychotherapy just because you don't quote unquote believe in it is irresponsible in my opinion. And so I am a staunch radical integrationist. And if you're not in the field, you have no idea what we're talking about. You're thinking, I had no idea therapists were like that. And if you're a therapist, you absolutely know what I'm talking about. There are still people today that are shy about being quote unquote eclectic. If you're eclectic, you get meaning that you believe in a lot of different theories, you get looked down on. People look down on you as a therapist if you're if you're eclectic. There's a new word for it called integration and the you know, more contemporary people are starting to move towards that word because eclectic has this really bad connotation only because of this weird culture that's in therapy, the therapy world. And so they'll, they'll say, I'm an integrated therapist. But really, I, I want to get to a point where we don't even use the word integrated anymore. We just say, I'm a therapist. And I look at all the research for all the treatments for this particular issue, and I tailor the treatment to that issue. And I don't I don't choose a particular treatment based on my own belief system. I choose a treatment based on the evidence available to me. And what some people will say is, well, when you do evidence-based treatments, you eliminate psychodynamic therapy because those have not been proven to work. And I have to just say that that's wrong. There's a lot of evidence that psychodynamic therapy works. It's just, it just doesn't lend itself very well to manualize randomized controlled trials, but they're starting to do that. Plus people in the psychodynamic community, I think were a little slow on the uptake when it came to actually getting on board with the evidence-based movement. But once, and now there's been a number of studies, but as they start to come out more and more, we'll start to see that psychodynamic therapy has has just as much evidence that it works for particular issues as CBT does. So the other thing is, is CBT itself, in my view, can be underneath psychodynamic therapy because there's a lot of there's a lot of writing in psychodynamic uh, psychodynamic literature and some of it actually sounds very cognitive and some of it can even sound behavioral so so and to, to my mind they're all kind of in this mix anyway uh, why was I ranting about that I will change the subject now so yeah anyway when people say they don't go to therapy because they don't think it's gonna work I just have to say, to those people who might be thinking that, that there is a lot of evidence that it works. And when I see someone that's suffering from depression and anxiety that isn't going to therapy because they don't think that therapy is going to help them, I'm just left wondering how much suffering could be reduced if they only went to a therapist. And, and, and incidentally, they'd have to find a therapist that they work well with. It's not just any old therapist. You know, as I was saying earlier, their relationship is very important, right? Well, 
you, you don't just develop a excellent relationship with just anybody. I mean, think about the average person on the street. Well, what's the chance that you and that average person are going to develop a, a deep relationship where you both respect and like each other? The, you know, the chances in, in my mind are, are not high. And so I always tell people to shop around for a while. Now, that's a massive pain in the ass, but, but really, I think necessary. Or at the very least, after the first month or two, if you don't really feel a good vibe between you and the therapist, move on and just tell the therapist, look, I, I'm not really feeling it with us. And so I, I'm going to change therapists and competent therapists are totally cool with that. They're professionals and, and they might be hurt a little bit, but that's not your responsibility. Another thing that I hear people say about as a, as a reason for not going to therapy is they'll say, well, I have people in my life that I can talk to. I have my friends. I have my sister. I have my husband. I can talk to them. I don't need to go to a therapist. And to some extent, it, that's true. If you have good relationships with people and you can get help in that way, then by all means, utilize that and, and don't go to therapy because what's the point? But what, what I'll say to counter that to some extent is that a therapeutic relationship is very different than a relationship you have with a support in your real life. The therapeutic relationship is, is particular. The therapist generally doesn't talk about themselves. The therapist doesn't depend on you to help them. The focus is completely on you. The therapist is a professional and supposedly trying to be, quote unquote, as objective as possible, even though it's impossible to be objective, objective. But, you know, they're, they're trying to, to see it uh, in an un, as unbiased way as possible. You know, for instance, you, you talk to your family member and uh, let me just drum up a, a, a scenario here. So say uh, a woman is having problems with her husband and she goes to her mom and starts talking with her mom. Well, the mom has a relationship with her husband, right? The mom has a relationship with her son-in-law. And so right there, there's already a bias. You're already going to get a different point of view than if you go to a therapist. Your, your mom also might have an agenda. Your mom might want you to stay together. Your mom might want you to break up. She might not like the guy and she might paint everything you say in, in, in the light of trying to get rid of him. Your mom might have, have a history with men that she hasn't really dealt with. And, and that colors everything that you guys talk about. Now, therapists have histories with people too, but therapists are professionally trained, get consultation and supervision and study to have a way to manage those, those feelings. Are they perfect at it? No, but they're paid to do that and, and they know they're supposed to do that. And so when you go to your therapist, presumably that will be less of a problem. So it's, it's a very different relationship. And sometimes, even though you have very supportive people in your life, a therapeutic relationship can be an additional help to, to, to your life. Plus, the, the, the final kicker for seeing a therapist as opposed to, to a non-therapist is that therapists are trained in particular treatments. For instance, EMDR or exposure therapy for trauma. If you've been traumatized, it's not likely that your friends and family are going to be able to give you a treatment for your trauma, whereas a trauma specialist therapist will definitely be able to do that. So it's another reason why going to a therapist is a good idea. Another thing that I hear sometimes people say, and I've heard this from 
students, particularly first quarter therapy students, will say that they have this idea that therapy is all about blaming your parents. And a lot of people, God bless them, have wonderful relationships with their parents and they love their parents and would, would never speak ill of their parents. And to my students, I say that I'm happy for you and that's good. And you should never be ashamed of the fact that you come from a good family. But no upbringing is without its complications. If you're a parent yourself, you know how hard it is to parent children and you know how many times you've disappointed your own children. I mean, children are constantly disappointed in their parents. You know, I want to have that cupcake. No, you've already eaten. You can't have another, you know, and, and kids are, are destroyed on a minute by minute basis by their parents. And so each one of those problems has a possibility of sticking with somebody. That's what I say to my students, but, but to potential clients, what I'd say is when you go to therapy, you can dictate what you talk about and competent, wise therapists would never say to you, well, you need to start talking shit about your parents because everyone knows that we're here to talk shit about your parents. I mean, no, no therapist is going to, I'm exaggerating, but no, no therapist is going to assume that the therapeutic action is going to comprise of complaining about your parents. Now, if you want to complain about your parents and that's an issue, then, you know, by all means do that. But a lot of therapy has nothing to do with with the talking about one's parents. I, I personally think that the, th- the therapeutic relationship has a lot to do with your parents and a lot to do with the way you were raised, but that's just because I'm psychodynamically bent. But if you don't want to complain about your parents or say you just want to talk about how great your parents are, then then a good therapist will absolutely validate that and encourage that. That's a wonderful thing to talk about. You could learn a lot from how wonderful your parents were. So to, to, to say that you don't want to come to therapy because you don't want to talk bad about your parents, to me, is, is again, a misunderstanding of what therapy is. Another thing that I hear, which drives me crazy, it drives me less crazy as I get older, but is that, well, I'm not going to go to therapy because therapists are, are crazy, right? I mean, they only enter the field because they are, they're mentally ill themselves. And what I say to, say to that is, yeah, to some extent that's true, but everyone has problems. So to say that therapists don't have problems is absurd because everyone has problems. And I chalk this misconception up to just messages that get thrown around in our culture. I don't know how they come about, but maybe it's the movies in which they depict, you know, nine out of 10 therapists in the movies and TV have massive personal problems that, (laughs) that interfere somehow with the therapy. So maybe it's from that, but anyway, and this is something I talk with my students about. There's this misconception and it's a massive, massive myth that therapists are supposed to have no problems and that therapists, are, their lives are supposed to be perfect. And of course, when I say it that way, it sounds ridiculous, but, but I know veteran therapists that still basically feel that way, that are ashamed of having a normal life. You know, if you're a marital therapist and you have a divorce, then 
you're supposed to, there was a, a, a speaker, a lecturer once that was talking about that. She was a, a marital therapist. And then she one day found out that she was being cheated on by one of her, by her husband and her friend. And then they had a divorce and, and she wondered, how can I be a marital therapist in the, in the midst of this? And I, I just have to say, I mean, Sometimes people make a comparison to medical doctors. It's like, well, how can you be a cancer doctor if you have cancer? Well, wouldn't wouldn't that actually make you a better cancer doctor if you had cancer? That makes sense to some extent when applying to therapy. If if you, for instance, have lost a pet that you that you had a close relationship with and you were grieving that loss, and you as a client lost a pet, well, wouldn't you want your therapist to have been through that kind of loss? Wouldn't you rather have them understand? firsthand what that feels like. If you went through a divorce and you were going crazy, wouldn't you want your therapist to know what that's like? So so it's really a strength to have life experiences. I mean, what's the alternative? That your therapist has been through nothing and has had no difficulties in life? That there's some kind of robot? That's the kind of therapist that you want? Don't you want a wise person who's been around the block a few times and understands what life is all about? So so there's that. The other thing is, is that, you know, a, a large percentage of Americans have a mental illness of some kind. Now, I'm not talking about schizophrenia. I mean, certainly that's out there. But I'm talking about anxiety, depression, PTSD, ADHD. Now, a good number of people have these diagnoses, can you know qualify for the diagnoses. And a lot of Americans become therapists. And the chance that all of those people who decide to become therapists just happen to not have any of those mental illnesses is just absurd, right? So a similar percentage of therapists are going to have those kinds of issues, those kinds of mental illnesses, if we want to call them that. And that doesn't preclude them from being a good therapist. A friend of mine suffers from depression, and he is one of the best therapists I've ever known. When he is with his clients, he puts on a different face. He puts on a different kind of persona. And I know he's very effective as a therapist, but outside of his career, I know him to be a quite depressed person, clinically depressed, you know, isolates himself, really low self-esteem sometimes, a lot of self-reproachment. And so just because you have a mental illness does not mean you can't be a good therapist. And my guess is is his clients don't know that he's severely depressed. So this notion that somehow if you have a mental illness like depression or anxiety, that somehow you're just like always looking crazy or something and that you're completely dysfunctional and you can't function in life. If that were true, the entire economy would fall apart given how many people have a quote unquote mental illness. So the fact is, is that for the vast majority of people who qualify, for something in the DSM, they function for the most part pretty well. You know, their mental illness impacts their functioning in their life, but it doesn't destroy it, if that makes any sense. And it doesn't mean that you can't be a good therapist. So that's what I have to say about that. Another thing that I hear people say is, well, why would I want to go to therapy? I don't want to dwell on it. You know, they'll say, it's funny just in my, I don't know, 18 years being in the profession. Well, 18? 19 years. The word dwell has become a very, I've been traumatized by the word dwell because pretty much every time I hear the word dwell, it's in the context of someone saying, 
well, don't talk about that. Don't dwell on it, they'll say. And to some extent, there's some wisdom to that. You know, if you're focusing on something that's negative and you don't need to, then by all means, try not to dwell on it. Try not to think about the negative thing because it's just going to ruin your life. You know, like if you, you know, say someone's afraid of terrorism and so they're dwelling on terrorism and so they never leave their house and, you know, one could say to that person, you're dwelling on terrorism. You're not, you're not thinking about how you can live outside of that. So, so there is some wisdom to that, of course, but you know, what happens is say someone again goes through a divorce and a year later, they're still troubled by it. And because in our culture, we have this belief that you should be over, you should have moved on after a certain amount of months and by a year or two, you should be over it. The person judges themselves themselves, and they think, man, I'm not over it yet. There's something wrong with me. I'm dwelling on the past. I, I, there's, something, there's something pathological about me. I need to move on. And if they went to talk to one of their friends a year after, two years after the divorce, and they're saying, yeah, I'm still struggling with the divorce, that friend is likely to say to their other friend, you know, Johnny is dwelling on his divorce and he, ne- he needs to move on. So there's, these, there's this notion, again, in our society about being independent and being uh, sort of uh, without emotion. And that there's notions about grief only lasting a short amount of time when in reality it lasts much, much longer. And, and so people have this this value that you're not supposed to think about things that bother you. And, you're, and, you, and there's this notion that you can control it. And in my experience, until you've been through something difficult, you tend to minimize the effect of something happening. You know, it, like it, saying getting to a divorce again. If if you've been through a divorce, then you know how hard it is. If you haven't been through a divorce, then you might not be as empathetic about how long someone is "quote unquote" dwelling on the difficulty. And so, there's all these ideas about not thinking about something that's that's negative, but in the therapeutic world and particularly the world I come from, it's well known that people need to talk about these things. They need to get support. They need to find that it's normal. They need to get uh, people's positive regard regarding it. They need to struggle with the meaning of these events. They, they need to dwell on it. They need to sit in it. And through that dwelling and through that sitting in the experience, in the difficulty recovery happens. And so when people say they don't want to go to therapy because they don't want to dwell on negativity, it, it again just doesn't make sense to me. Let me see. Why why else might people not come to therapy? Oh, well, well one reason that I don't know if I can actually refute is that some people have jobs like in Seattle, Boeing, you know, the airplane company is a major employer. And they make stuff for the government. (laughs) They have a defense contract, you know, where they make jet planes and that kind of stuff. And in order to work in a sensitive field like that, you have to pass certain background checks for crime and psychological fitness. And so if you seek therapy or the military, there's military bases in the area too. And so in these government jobs, if it comes out that you have a mental illness, then you can lose your job. You can 
you can it's written into the contract that if you get diagnosed with something i don't know exactly how it works but you can lose your job and or lose your security clearance or be prevented from promotion or this sort of thing. So it's a very real issue to, to these people. And I've had clients in, in the, these shoes before. And so for these people, they won't seek therapy because they're worried about losing their job. And I just, in the, in the times that I've run into this, I find it to be a huge tragedy. I mean, one guy, one guy was suffering quite a bit. And when he came to me, he said, I'm not sure if I want to come another time because I don't know if I want any record of this happening. And he was very inquisitive about, you know, where my records go. And I said, well, everything's confidential. And, and if your employer were to contact me, I would tell them I, I can't release patient information. I can't even reveal if I know you or not. And, and so he, he liked that. But he, he worried about his insurance, you know, because his medical insurance, which is who pays me, does have a relationship with his employer. And so, you know, there, there was a lot of conversations about that. And the the tragedy was that he really, really needed therapy. I mean, he was suffering a lot and isolated and stressed and really benefited from therapy. And yet he was very close to dropping out just because he was worried about losing his job. Now, on one hand, that just seems like a tragedy, right? You know, that that Boeing and the military would create circumstances that would prevent someone from getting the treatment that they need. But on the other hand, I, I mean, I guess I understand where they're coming from. They They need to have their employees stable, I guess. But the vast majority of, of people who go to therapy are stable in their life. They function well. And their job would actually be enhanced by them going to therapy. All right. Well, that was a lot of rambling. I wonder what I'm going to call this episode. Maybe I'll call it like stupid reasons why people don't go to therapy. <laughs> That's not bad. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Again, I remind people that I'm launching my continuing education program. I had my very first continuing education customer today, which I very much appreciate. Uh, basically, again, just to remind people, if you do this program thing, if you go to psychologyinseattle.com and get, you know, and pay the fee and take the quiz and it's a short little easy quiz, it's not hard, and you get your certificate, then the money that's generated through the continuing education program will basically be a cue to me, will, will basically justify me cutting back on my private practice to be able to do the podcast more. And when I have more time to do the podcast, then I can do more of the in-depth theory-based episodes. Most of, many, many people say, they send emails to me, they said, yeah, I love the podcast and I love the, the levity and all that stuff, but but the theory episodes I really enjoy. And so if, if you do the continuing education uh, thing, then that will justify me dedicating time to the podcast to be able to do more episodes like that, which I would really enjoy. So, and also if you're listening to the podcast and you, and you need continuing education for your license, then why not get credit just for listening to the podcast, right? Well, anyway, Okay, well, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining me, and please take care of yourself. And if you are a therapist or a non-therapist, spread the word. Do what you can to change our culture regarding why people 
don't go to therapy. All the things that I talked about today are perpetuated by culture. And if we all do our part to change our culture, maybe our culture will change and more people will get the help that they need. All right. Take care of yourself.